Rusty from Oceanside. Hi, I'm Rusty Alcoholic. It's a long drive, right, Maureen? Um, I'm really, I'm really happy to be here today, and uh, I want to thank uh, Damien for inviting me down, and um, uh, I want to thank Maureen for a great talk. I really enjoyed that. Um, I listened fast because you were kind of talking fast, so I was listening with you. So, um, and I want to say happy birthday to uh, Wendy and to Bill. Um, Julian and my wife, and my wife's here with me tonight, and. Um, Somebody came up and asked if um, Julie was married to Bill, and um, he goes, "No." But Julie said, "Well, it is your birthday," and um, just <laughs> uh, <laughs> why she's in Allen on a really long time because she really loves alcoholics. Um, um, I want to thank my wife Julie for coming with me. I really, I absolutely adore my wife. I love her very, very much. And uh, she travels with me. She's heard me speak hundreds of times, and she still goes and hears me a lot. Um, actually, I knew I was going to marry her from the very first time I met her because uh, she was the most beautiful woman I ever met who ever said hello back. Um, so <laughs> it worked out for me over the years. Um, I want to welcome the newcomers and, and uh, those who raised their hands, those who didn't raise their hands, and uh, welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I've been sober since December 9th, 1979, so I'm coming up on 35 years of sobriety. Um, I have a a sponsor who is Bob B. from San Marcos, and he has a sponsor from um, Oceanside named Pat T. They're both uh, sober over 40 years, and they're both very active in Alcoholics Anonymous still. Um, And I have a home group, which is Friday Night San Marcos, and uh, I go to that meeting whenever I'm in town or whenever I'm not speaking. I'm at that meeting um, whenever I all the time, unless I'm going to a Padre game, and then sometimes I'm not at this meeting. So, um, you know, when I first came here to AA, I was 25 years old, you know, and I really, I was like Maureen, I thought, man, I don't like this place, I don't know what's going on, because I was a really shy person when I came here. Found out later I was more immature than shy, but I was really kind of, I thought I was shy, and, um, you know, I didn't like this place. And it took a while for me to warm up to it because I was with some some old timers, as Bill talked about, some old timers who really let me, let me know what I should do in no uncertain terms. So, um, I talk a lot about feelings. I don't know about the rest of you guys, but the bars I drank in, we didn't talk about our feelings. <laughs> Nobody came to me in the bar and said, "Hey, listen, I woke up this morning with a bunch of nameless fears. What do you think?" You know, that never happened. <laughs> Never talked that way in the bar, right? And I never talked that way at home. I, I come from an alcoholic home. Actually, I come from an alcoholic neighborhood. Um, <laughs> um, it was a normal alcoholic home. You know, it's like um, everybody drank in the you know they drank in the garage at six in the morning. It seemed very normal to me. And it was it was it, it, we, the SWAT team was called to our neighborhood twice on the same guy. It wasn't like different people got called on, but. Um, and there was just lots of drinking and fighting and laughter. It was sort of like leave it to beaver on acid, you know. It was um, somewhat bizarre, but really normal nonetheless, you know. And I was, uh, and I was born and raised up there in San Marcos, up near the up near the coast, north North County. And um, I was born with a big um, batch of red hair, and I hated my hair, and I hated the way I looked from the time I can remember. 
You know, I hated all that. Because, you know, I, I can burn under a 60-watt bulb. Seriously. And it's, you know, I'm going to the beach, and I got, like, zinc oxide on my ears and my nose and my lips and everything. And I got a long sleeve shirt and a big old hat and everything. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm a girl magnet, you know. And it's like... And uh, I hated the way I looked, you know. And um, when I came to this program, I heard about pe- people talking about they didn't like who they were and they didn't feel like they fit in. And that that was one of the first things I identified with is not being able to fit in, you know. And and um, from the time I can remember, I was this scared little kid looking to get out. You know, I didn't know what to do. But I put on this facade like I knew everything. Um, first time I thought about running away chemically, I was about seven years old. And I and there was something going on. I'm scared to death about something. And yet, um, what I remember thinking was, wow, if mom will give me one of her tranquilizers, it'll make everything okay. And that was the first time I thought about running away chemically in my life. Don't fix the problem, but let's do something to make it go away. And my mom, uh, rest her soul, was in Al-Anon a very long time. And she said, when you go and speak, um, always tell people that I did not give you the tranquilizer. Okay? <laughs> So she didn't give me the tranquilizer at that time. But there was a lot of alcohol around our house, you know, and we were sipping on it as kids all the time, you know, and you're sipping on it the morning after parties, and every once in a while you get a cigarette butt, and you either spit it out or swallow it. It's a chance you take as a budding little alcoholic, right? And um, I remember the first, the first time I got drunk, I was about 13 or 14 years old. My brother and I were down the street at the widow's house. Uh, the widow was a 32-year-old blonde woman. And it means a lot to me today. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's going to be a long ride home. Um, I mean, I could have like a private moment right now. It's really kind of stuck with me a long time. But we're down the street. We're supposed to be at our friend's house, and we go across the street. We're over there drinking. I'm drinking Colt 45 malt liquor. And I believe, go to the top, right? That's what I'm believing in doing. And we're drinking, and we're getting drunk. And, and you know, that first that first drink goes down, and it, and it just smoothed out that knot of fear. Maureen talked about that knot sitting in her stomach. You know, I, and I identified that with that immediately when I was new, is that I'd come in here... I'm down there, this knot of fear is just sitting there. I can't talk to anybody. I'm scared to death of everything, and I hate the way I look, you know. Yet I drink that that beer, and I start drinking those, and it changed everything about me, you know. And like it talks about in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, that this magical transformation took effect. You know, I drank that, and I became very, very gregarious, although I'm I'm really shy by nature, and I don't talk much. And I became really philosophical, and I got really romantic that night, although I was alone at the time that happened. And then, um, <laughs> sorry. And <laughs> you know, those are all. That's all taking effect with one beer. And I'm thinking, wow, if one makes me feel like this. Imagine what 21 is going to make me feel like. And there's a story of my alcoholism in a nutshell, because I always looked for it to be better. You know, it was, it one made me feel great, but now 21 is going to make me perfect. I never thought, boy, if I have another one, I'll be okay, right? And that's what I look for all the time when I drank is finding that, that feeling. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Cliff Roach, talks about that, that eight minutes of being okay in the world, you know? And I identified with that because that's what I wanted. I looked for that feeling, and I never could, I'd always slide by it. I'd see it, and I'd go, oh, there it went, 
right? And yet I'm off and running one more time. And I got in trouble that night, which is also a pattern of mine in, al- in, in my alcoholism. Uh, my father um, heard us, and he came running down there in his underwear, which is pretty scary in and of itself when you think about it. And, um, and my father's alcoholic, and I'll talk about that later. But um, he comes down, and, and, he, and he, he says to my brother and I, to come home, he takes us home, and he wants to punish us. Punish us, and I've talked to him about it. You know, I've talked about him sub- subsequently. Excuse me. And he said he knew he, did, he couldn't punish me that night because I wouldn't remember anything. So my punishment is the next morning. He has me up at dawn, and he had us clean the ceiling in the kitchen. All the food was fried, and everybody smoked in our home and everything. And as a deterrent, it worked really well because I hated grease for a long time. But what you couldn't take away is how I felt about the alcohol. And because it made those things happen to me that made me feel okay for once in my life, you know. Now, I wish I could tell you that when, you know, at that age of 14, going into high school, that I began to drink in the bars with fake IDs and and, and bought booze in the, in the liquor stores. But I'd be lying to you. At the age of 14, when I went into high school, I was uh, 4 feet 10 inches tall. I weighed 86 pounds, and I had one hair in my armpit. And... <laughs> And I did not fit in. I didn't, you know, I know a lot of people talk about high school, a lot of fond remembrances. I just wanted to survive that place. You know, I really did. I remember being in gym that first day, and, and we're supposed to take a shower and everything. I'm looking at my one hair, and I'm thinking, I don't fit in. You know, I don't like this place. And it was that, that was the story of my alcoholism. My first week at, uh, of high school, I had to go to the, uh, I had to go to the gym to the freshman dance in San Marcos, a little school up there. And I had to go to the, and, to the dance and learn to get along with people. And I remember standing on, in the gymnasium, and I'm standing against the wall with some other freshman boys, and we all had high, squeaky voices at the time, right? And I'm looking across the floor at Betty, and I want to go ask Betty to dance because she's gorgeous. But if I go over and ask Betty to dance, she's going to say no, and then i got to come back across the floor while her and her girlfriends are all laughing at me hysterically, and then I'm going to have to go outside and kill myself. There's my thought. Betty doesn't even know I'm alive. She doesn't even know I exist, right? Then friend says, hey, we got some peppermint schnapps. So I go outside and we drink that peppermint schnapps and that magical transformation takes effect again. I walk back in and look around and go, okay, who gets to dance with me now, right? <laughs> that egomaniac with that inferiority complex. And I went out there and began to dance, although I'm paraphrasing dancing. Um, because I didn't know until after I got sober, I didn't know how to dance, Right? <laughs> But I was told at the time I did it with great enthusiasm, okay? Now, the normal person, if they're told that, they're like, yeah, I had a good time. Look at me. I was great. But for me, it was like, you're a loser, kid, one more time, you know? And that's the way it, that's the way it went for me. You're just another loser. And I, I got into high school. And I, um, there were a lot of things. I did a lot of other stuff. Um, don't get me wrong. I went to school in the late 60s, and, and um, there was a lot of chemicals. There were a lot of things. But I loved alcohol. Alcohol is what did it for me, you know? I tried pot for a while, but, you know, I'm already scared to death. Now I'm paranoid on top of it. So it's like, no, nah, I don't want that. You know, and worst sunburn I ever got, I took LSD and went and laid on the beach for eight hours without moving. And um, I was frying inside and out on that day, I'll tell you. It was like, Jesus. So those around, but I loved alcohol. I love what alcohol did for me, or what I perceived that it did for me, you know. And, and you know, and I got into high school. You know, I got through high school, much to my relief and much to my parents' relief. I'll tell you. And I wanted to go into a career in medicine, 
And um, I'm the first one in my family that was going into it, wanted to go into the career in medicine. Everybody in my family are really artisans and craftsmen. They build things. They're great with their hands. They know how to do stuff. And I don't have that gene in me. I just don't, I can't. You know, for me, nailing two boards together is not an easy chore for me. I'm not handy that way. And um, so I told my parents I wanted to go to college and learn about medicine. It's kind of a sick alcoholic thought when you think about it. I want to go fix people. I can't really nail boards together, but I want to go fix people, right? And so my problem when I went to college is I took me with me. It was really a big mistake on my part because in order to be equal to anybody, I have to be ten times better than you, you know, because I can't measure up in my own head. I can't measure up to that. So just to be equal to you, you have to be better than you, and that's what I had to do. When I didn't get top of the class in my first semester, it was like, I'm going to quit. But my parents talked me into staying, you know. And so it just started this big cycle of I'd be drunk, I'd go to class, I'd get grades because I have, I have grades, you know. And um, yet I would start drinking and then the party be on and I wouldn't go to classes and things would just be happening, you know. And uh, in medicine, you really need to go to class every day, you know. <laughs> you can't skip parts of it because you'll miss something important. Like how the heart works, right? Um, <laughs> and eventually I did what I also do really well is I quit. And I, went, I ran home to mom and dad and became a protected alcoholic. And by that I mean um, I lived at home with my parents and, and I worked for my father in his business. And uh, by protected I mean if I didn't show up on Monday for work because I was too hungover or still drunk, it was okay as the boss's son. You know, and if I didn't show up on Tuesday because I was still too drunk or hungover, it's okay, he's the boss's son. And if I went home early on Friday because I had a really rough Wednesday and Thursday at work, it's okay, he's the boss's son. You know, and I was almost loved to death um, because of that. You know, and and what, it ha- what happened is that that fear that I was feeling now began to manifest itself in anger. And I learned that in this program that unresolved fear will manifest itself in anger at all times, you know. Because I never talked about how afraid I was. I could never say any of that. And so this anger started coming out of me all the time. My catalyst was I'd drink, I'd be angry. You know? And by this time, I'm drinking in the bars nightly and, uh, and you know, getting into a lot of fights, although I'm paraphrasing fights again because every fight I've ever been in, I've lost. Um, I'm, I'm living proof they'll punch a guy with glasses is what it is. <laughs> I thought I was witty repartee is what I was in, you know, talking about, but I was really a smartass, and I would say anything. And, and I have a genius for really pissing off the biggest guy in any place for some reason. And so there was, I was being kicked out of places, and I couldn't go back. Because you know that, that morning after when you come to, and there's that knot of fear because you know you did something, but you're not sure what you did, you know? And I'd come to, and I'd be thinking, I'd say that age-old alcoholic prayer. I'd say, please, God, don't let me do this again. And I would absolutely mean it, you know. Julie and I get a chance to go talk to, uh, do a family meeting at once a month at a recovery center up in North County. And we talk to the families of the, of the addicts and alcoholics. And they're saying, well, they, they always made these promises and never kept them. And I, and I always tell them, look, alcoholics, we make these promises. We actually mean them. Don't think that we're lying when we do it. We actually mean them, but we just can't follow through on them all the time. And that's one of those surprising things to the families that they don't that they don't realize sometimes. And I and I meant that prayer. Please don't let me do this again. But then after a little while, it's like you know, it wasn't that bad, you know? Because I'm alcoholic and I can have a plan. I always have a plan, 
right? I can be laying in the gutter looking up at you and I got a plan, right? And so what happened is, that, you know, after a while, I'm like, it wasn't, you know, it really wasn't that bad. Maybe I'll have a drink and I'll feel better. And then I'm off and running again. And I'm getting kicked out of a bar or I'm getting, or I'm being pulled over or, I'm do, or something's going on. And waking up, coming to the next morning and saying, please, God, don't let me do this again. And it was that vicious cycle. And it talks about in our book that definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. And I always expected it to be different, and it never was. But I always went back to it because it's what I knew. I've come to realize over the years that I've been sober is that I didn't, I just couldn't not drink. You know, I didn't know how not to drink. I had to learn that here in Alcoholics Anonymous, how to live comfortably in my own skin so I don't need to pick anything up in order to make myself feel comfortable. My comfort comes from the inside now. And so I'm, I'm drinking in those bars. I mean, one of the worst insults I ever got in the bars, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, by this time I'm about as tall as I am now, six feet tall, and I weighed about 130 pounds, right? And um, yapping away at some guy, and he just looks over me and goes, Jesus, you're like a talking stick, right? <laughs> it was really insulting, but it was true. You know, I was... And, you know, when you're really, I was so self-absorbed, you know, and, and Maureen was kind of touching on it, too, is I was so self-obsessed is that I was really in on myself, and I only thought about me. Occasionally, I thought about you thinking about me, but I only thought about me, right? Because it was only about me. And so what happened, I'd just be thinking, 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 you know, what do they think? What do they think? And when you do that, you become a very shallow person. You know, because it's all about you, and I became really shallow. When I came here, I heard about incomprehensible demoralization, and I understood it inherently, right? Because what I what I found was that, you know, I never got up in the morning and said, "God, I hope I get beat up today, possibly put in jail, you know, maybe lose my car to really top the day off, you know, and really have people mad at me." That isn't what I got. That isn't what I had in mind. But that's where it went a lot of times. You know, and I wanted to look good. You know, I look at a room full of people like this. You guys know how to dress. You know how to act at all times, right? So in 1976, I went to a wedding in Los Angeles, and I wanted to look good. You really, I'm really shallow. I can't feel good about myself, but I at least want to look good. So I had on a powder blue leisure suit, <laughs> big collars, all polyester. You couldn't walk within five feet of a flame because you just go up like a handle, right? <laughs> I had tall shoes and I had this huge red hair. Huge red hair. All 130 pounds of me. My friend Will said, you put a yellow raincoat on you, you, num- you look like a number two pencil. Right? <laughs> but I'm thinking I look good, right? No matter what, I'm looking good. And so I come out of a blackout. We're coming south on Interstate 5. My brother's driving from this wedding. And we've been up in L.A. at a wedding, and we're coming south, and my brother, I'm saying to my brother, slow down or let me out. And he laughs, which for us is fighting terms. And I said, seriously, slow down or let me out. And so he stopped. And I can call a bluff, so I got out. And then he drove off. Right? <laughs> I'm standing up by the San Onofre power plant, and I'm really perplexed, but I'm looking good, no matter what, right? <laughs> so I stick my thumb out, and a guy on a Volkswagen skids to a stop, and I jump in with him, and we go racing down the freeway. This guy's twice as drunk as my brother. <laughs> we get down the road. Then I saw my brother backing up on the freeway, looking for me. 
And then, and I, and I waved to my brother, but he claims to this day I waved with one finger, but I waved to my brother, right? <laughs> and I get home one more time and, 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 and go, and I pass out wherever it is. And I don't know about you guys, I passed out in a lot of different places, under the bushes, under the car, in the car, on the car, wherever it was. I just passed out, right? And, so that next morning I came to and I still had on that suit and everything that I thought I looked so good in, you know, and I was d- so dazzling up there in L.A. at this wedding. And, and I came to, and I don't know about any of you guys, but I always check myself for blood to see if I, if I, it was usually mine anyway, but, but I, but I had this deathly fear that I was going to hurt somebody. I'd look at my car to see how my car looked and, you know, and I'm looking, I got that suit on still, and then I realized I had the coat on inside out, right? <laughs> And here was my thought. I immediately thought, oh, my God, I can't go back to L.A., right? <laughs> and I didn't go to L.A. for a long time. I was only a small part of L.A., right? But because I'm so self-absorbed and so self-obsessed, I can't go anywhere, right? I knew they were going to know. So when I heard about incomprehensible demoralization, I understood it immediately, you know? And then in, 19, in uh, 1976, uh, I went to talk to my mom. This makes us a huge surprise to you guys. Um, I was a world-class whiner on top of everything else, right? Um, I could remember going to my mom whining about how life's so unfair, blah, 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 blah. I had stopped working for my father by mutual agreement because we, couldn't, we didn't get along because of his alcoholism and mine. And, and I had gone working a bunch of menial jobs um, because I didn't want to have to think about a thing. Just give me enough money to party and I'll be okay. And, um, I'm whining to her that my life's, you know, so unfair. And being my mom, she starts throwing those things out like, you know, maybe if you uh, went back to school. And I thought, nah, that seems too hard. I don't want to go back to school. And then she said, well, you know, if you got a different job, things might be better for you. I didn't want to do that. She throws a few things out. And then she says, you know, sometimes when people get married, they settle down. And I went, I haven't done that. <laughs> so I went looking for her, right? And really what I was looking for is a hostage. And um, I went looking for somebody to fix me. And uh, I met my first wife, Diane. Uh, she moved out here from Massachusetts from a bad alcoholic relationship. And uh, we knew each other a few weeks, and we got married. And my mom was right. I settled down for like 10 hours, right? Because the problem was, one, once again, I brought me to the equation. I wasn't taking care of anything. I was just showing up. And now I start this four-and-a-half-year relationship with, with Diane based on my alcoholism and her fear of that alcoholism, you know? Because by this time, all that anger is there, and I'm, I'm raging all the time. And it doesn't take much to make me start to rage, and I throw things around the house, and I, and I, and I broke some windows. One time I threw all my own clothes out on the lawn. <laughs> I'm not really sure why I did that. Um, I don't know if I was running away or if I was kicking myself out. I don't know what I was doing. But Diane, Diane seems to still find it amusing. We still, I see her all the time, and she says, "But you remember when you threw your own clothes out there, partner?" <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, so I'm raging, and she's scared of it. And the next morning, because she needs to do something to protect herself from me and protect her own sanity, as she would do things to protect herself. By one of her favorite things was, I'd be so sick and hung over where she'd start vacuuming but she vacuumed right by my head all the time never moved she never did one spot it was the cleanest spot in the whole house it just over and I hated vacuums for a long time but when you think about it 
That's the one thing that makes me feel horrible inside that I pushed a person to that extreme in order to survive me. Because if you said, do you love your wife? I would have said, well, sure. But if you asked me, how do you feel about her? I couldn't tell you because I didn't even know how to feel about myself. If you don't love yourself, it's really hard to love somebody else sometimes. And so what happened is, uh, what, are, what fixes a relationship is a child. So my, Diane got, she got pregnant with my daughter, Julie. Um, this is going to be weird to you guys. I have a wife named Julie, I have a daughter named Julie, and I have a daughter-in-law named Julie. And um, so I just know one name and they all ignore me. <laughs> and so my daughter, Julie, was born. In uh, June, on June 11, 1978, for you know, for once in my life, I thought I did something good. I absolutely thought I did a good thing, and I, I adored that that baby. Yet I, my alcoholism put that baby in harm's way. When she was about 14 months old, right before I got sober, um, I came out of a blackout and I'm racing down the freeway. Then I'm st- I'm still got my drink, and she's in the back seat. She's not in a car restraint. She's not in a seatbelt. She's got nothing. She's just sitting back there, trusting that her Trusting that her daddy is going to take care of her. And her daddy was incapable of taking care of himself. And you know, her God watched out for her when her dad was incapable of it. Because nothing happened that day. But you know the insanity of our disease is? It didn't stop me from driving with her again. That's our insanity. And so we get home and I drop my baby off. And you know, my daughter is now, she's 35 years old. And she's got three kids of her own. You know, and, and I've learned how to be a, a, a husband and a dad, and, and more importantly, I've learned how to be a grandfather around here. And I love those grandbabies. They smile. I write them a check. Right? It's like, <laughs> don't come up to me after the meeting and smile because I'm not going to write you a check. All right? It's not going to happen. But you know, if it wasn't for this program, I wouldn't have that. I absolutely wouldn't have that. I have a relationship with my ex-wife, Diane, because of this program. Because they taught me about making amends. They told me, when you make amends, you no longer get to call anybody by any derogatory names. So if you say, I'm sorry about my actions, you don't get to say, follow up with, you, whatever. Okay? You no longer ever get to call them derogatory names. My sponsor is very adamant about that point. And I'm adamant about that point with the guys I sponsor. Because in order to make those amends, I have to truly mean it. And so I was able to make those amends with her, and she's a, she's a friend of mine. You know, and then I went to, on December 8th, 1979, I came out of a blackout, and I destroyed my home one more time. And Diane, fortunately for me, called my mom. And I will always be grateful to my mom. Uh, see, my mom didn't think I was a throwaway person. She knew I was a sick person. She didn't think I was a bad person. And I always thought I was just a bad person. And she called Alcoholics Anonymous. Or had me call out AA. Because she said you had a choice. Call AA or call a psychiatrist. And I went with AA because it seemed cheaper. You know? Psychiatrist is expensive. AA is a buck or something. You know, whatever it is. So I went with AA. And I called a guy and I talked to a guy at Central Office named Bernie O'Kay. And Bernie came out and 12 sent me that night with Larry D. And those two men I will always be grateful to because they reach the hand of AA after that suffering alcoholic. It's like 2 in the morning on a rainy Saturday night, and it's cold. And these gentlemen were persistent because the first time I told them how to get to my house, I couldn't quite remember the directions. And I got it wrong. But they called me back, and they came. And it impresses me to this day that they came. I don't know what we talked about that night, nor do I need to know what we talked about that night. 
The fact that they were there speaks volumes about what this program is. See, because what I think about is it would have been so easy for them to say that night, listen, kid, don't drink anymore tonight. We'll come see you in the morning. But in the morning, I might have had another plan. And you might have a completely different speaker tonight. So they came and we talked. And the next morning was December 9th of 79. I've been sober since my first meeting. through no great wisdom of my own. I just did what those guys suggested all the time. Never quite understood what they would suggest a long time, but they did it. And they came over and, at, and they were taking me to, to the um, uh, Sunday morning meeting. It started at 11. It was a participation meeting. And they showed up in Larry's truck. And um, it didn't have much in the way of shocks. So they put me right in the middle on the hump. And what I came to find out from these guys, these guys were the cruelest men I've ever met in my life. Because they took great delight in antagonizing the newcomer. And they were damn good at it. Right? Bernie brought this big jelly donut with grape jelly in it. And periodically, he'd wave it in front of me, squeeze it a little bit, so jelly came out, and he'd go, jelly donut? And I was like, after a while, I went, oh, you know, I don't eat. And that, which just made him laugh even more. You know, and they took me to that first meeting, and here's my first impression of AA. A lot of teeth. There were a lot of teeth. Thank you. Because um, everybody's smiling at me. Big greeting line, you're running through it, and I'm scared to death. And they knew I was new. I don't know how they knew I was new, but they, always, they said, you're new, aren't you? I'm like, how do they know? Am I wearing a sign somewhere that says, you're new? And they took me in there, and, and Bernie, and, and um, they asked if I wanted coffee, and I said I'd love some coffee, and and Cliff Roach went to get me some, and he kind of laughed as he walked away, like, <laughs> as he goes away. He comes back with his cup filled to the brim, right? And I'm new, and I'm shaking. I shake the cup of coffee all over my hand. And I look over, and a bunch of them are laughing. And I'm thinking, oh, and I'm thinking, what did I get myself into? Because these guys really, really tried to get me to laugh more than anything. You know, and I got to sit down there, and Bernie said something to me that morning that I'm gonna, I always remember. He said... They're going to ask for newcomers in their first 30 days of sobriety. We suggest you raise your hand. And I said, Bernie, I've been thinking about it. Famous last words as a newcomer. I've been thinking about it. I'm not so sure I'm an alcoholic. And Bernie said, and this holds true for me, and if you don't like it, go talk to your sponsor. It's a great way to open up a dialogue with them. Um, Bernie said, you know, only an alcoholic wonders if he's an alcoholic. And I said, oh. Because I don't know about you guys, they always talk to me in code. Nobody ever gave me a damn code book, right? <laughs> they said amazing things to me. They said, one time they go, you come to this meeting and make coffee, you're going to get to stay sober. And I'm thinking, what the hell does that mean? I make coffee every morning. I haven't been sober yet. <laughs> but you know, when you're new, you don't want to look bad. So I was like, oh. You try to smile without letting your eyes spin is basically what you're trying to do. One day Bernie says to me, listen, you need to be aware of the seemingly good and the seemingly bad. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> bad is what I don't want and good's what I do want. There you go, Bernie, that's it. And he, So they were always talking to me and so they, uh, I raised my hand and I've been an alcoholic to this day. That is my disease and I haven't taken a vacation from it or felt necessary to go and drink. And... Um, they took me over to Bernie's house afterward, and they did what they were taught to do by the big book, by other members of the program. As they began talking to me, as only one alcoholic can talk to another alcoholic. you know. And they talked to me about their fears and about their anger, and all of a sudden I realized I wasn't alone. These guys had the same things going on. you know. 
And they said they're going to keep coming back. And I was worried at first, you know, because they said, we'll be back tomorrow to get you. And I'm thinking, what are my neighbors going to think, right? They didn't care as long as I wasn't parking on their lawn anymore, right? And I really thought they were going to come with a van that said AA, right? And at 10 months of sobriety, I'm going to tell you a turning point for me. At 10 months of sobriety... Um, I was fired from another job, and, and Diane decided to divorce me. And I'm thinking, wow, this AA is working great, right? Um, AA was working just fine. I wasn't doing anything. I was going to a ton of meetings, but I was just going to the meetings, right? I wasn't working on stuff. I wasn't being honest with myself. I, couldn't, I wasn't doing that, but I was going to those meetings, which kept me sober long enough so I could figure it out. I got fired from a job for a really simple reason. I was a terrible employee. That's the bottom line. I remember I went to it and they said, we're going to let you go. And I said, you don't understand. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and they said, and I'm quoting here, we don't care. <laughs> you're late all the time. You know, you haven't been showing up. You're fired. It's like, oh, Okay. And Diane decided to divorce me for good reasons, because our relationship was over. I give her all the credit in the world for that. So I remember it was Halloween of 1980, and, I'm, and they're going to have a big Halloween dance. And, you know, I wanted lit. I just want to stay home and wallow in my misery, right? I just want to wallow in self-pity. It seemed like the better thing to do. And by this time, I made a lot of friends, because I'd done a lot of setup uh, meetings. I set up the, the Saturday night meeting in uh, San Marcos. Huge meeting, 250 people with a greeting line from hell, yet it's like running a gauntlet, right? shaking your hand and everything. I wanted nothing to do with it. They said, we need somebody to make coffee, right? I said, what time do I have to be here? They said, it's 8.30 meeting. you got to be here by 6.30 and make, make coffee and set up chairs. And I said, great, I'll miss that greeting line. So I kept that, that commitment for three and a half years. So I'd get out of that greeting line. I was no rock at the stardom, but I got there to that meeting every Saturday night. You know, And I can make coffee, let me tell you. It's on my, it's on my resume now, coffee maker. And it's... Um, but they're having this dance, and they call me and said, come to the dance. I said, I have nothing left. You know, I have nothing to, to, to put on. They said, just come to the dance. We'll take care of you. I said, really, I don't have nothing to put on. And they said, just come on. So I put on, I had a, a, a blue check shirt and a little red bandana and my jeans, and I thought I looked like, I thought I looked like John Wayne. <laughs> that was my image of myself, maybe Clint Eastwood. So I go walking up to this dance, and there's a whole bunch of people up there. And as I walked up, they all began to sing the Howdy Doody song to me. <laughs> Insensitive bastards, and they were really bad at it too. I got to tell you, they were like, "It's how to do time. It's how to do time." For those who are younger people, how do you do? was like a puppet that looks like me, or I look like him, whatever it is, right? And I went into that meet. I went into that dance. And I started laughing. It was the first time I'd laughed in a long time because most of my laughter was maniacal laughter, right? And it came out of me because I would hear people laughing in these meetings. I remember my friend Pete and I were at this meeting, and we're both about 35 years. I'm 35 days sober. I got 35. He's got 30. And Pete gets called on, and he goes up to the podium, and he says, oh, I had a terrible day. I mean, I was like, got up late, and my wife's mad at me. And, and then uh, I went to work, and my boss read me the riot act and topped my whole day off. I went to Coco's, and I lost 10 bucks. It's like everybody's, oh, that's terrible. Bernie gets called up because I had a great day. I got up early. My wife made me a special breakfast. I went to work. I got an unexpected raise. Topped my day off. I went to Coco's and I found 10 bucks. (laughs) (laughs) And Pete and I are back there going, that's not funny. (laughs) 
So when I laughed going into that dance, you know, when I went out, that was a, that was a dance I found out I didn't know how to dance. But I, yeah, I was told again, I did it with great enthusiasm, you know. And I talked to my sponsor. I said, what do we need to do? And he said, you need to get into these steps, and you need to go back to school. You've been wanting to go back to school. Now you've got all the time in the world. You're not married, and you have no job, right? They weren't coddling me, and they didn't need to. I went back to school, and I got into medicine. I work in the emergency room up at Tri-City in Oceanside. I've been there for 33 years. I'm in management now, which surprises the hell out of me sometimes. And I'm sitting in my office going, if they only knew, right? <laughs> And I love my job, and I love... That's where I met Julie. Julie was not a patient. I forgot to say that one time. I was talking one time. I said, I met Julie at the hospital. And somebody said, well, she's a patient? It's like, yeah, she looked good in restraint, so that's why I want her. Um, <laughs> but she worked, she worked there. And to use one of our phrases, I really wanted what she had. And so... You'll think about that one later. Um, <laughs> and we started dating. And um, I remember calling my sponsor. I said, oh, I got this date with this really wonderful woman. And he, I'm chattering on and on. And, my, and Bob goes, geez, you know, look, you're not, you're not storming the beaches of Normandy. It's just a date. Just go have some fun, okay? <laughs> and we went out, and we've, we've, we fell in love. And we've been, we've been married now for uh, 31 years. Yeah. So thank you. And she goes out on, and I do it. But I, I got to tell you a really quick story about my dad. I told you to talk, talk about my dad. Um, when um, when I was about 15 months sober, um, I was living at my parents' house because I had a job, and I'm going to school and everything, and I'm living with my mom and dad. And I'm thinking this is a bad thing. It's one of those seemingly bad things that Bernie talked to me about. It seemed bad. And my dad would be out there drinking in the garage, and these guys would come and pick me up because my car didn't work very well, so they would come and pick me up like, you know, he's telling him to do. And then one night I got to go to a meeting on Wednesday night. My dad said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to a meeting. And my dad said, well, can I go with you? And I said, sure. I called Larry and I go, what do I, what do, I do? And he said, just bring him to the meeting. We'll take care of him. Right? And so I took my dad to his first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was sober from um, his first meeting on March 28, 1981, until he passed away uh, last year. And my dad ordered over 30 years of sobriety. And um, I miss my pops very, very much. He was a very funny man. He hated the podium, but when he got up here, we never knew what he might say, which was a little scary, you know. One night he's standing at the podium at a big meeting. There's about 200 people, and he goes, I'm sitting there, and I'm sitting next to this. I'm single at the time, and I'm sitting next to this girl thinking I'm doing pretty good. And my dad, all of a sudden, I hear him say, Rusty's mom and I think he was conceived through pantyhose. <laughs> And I look up, and he's looking right at me like. <laughs> and I look back at the girl, and she's like, you're a freak. Okay? Um, and then my mom yells out of the audience, like, oh, Ronnie, we didn't even have pantyhose back then. And I'm like, oh, But that was my pops, Right? And I love my dad dearly. You know, the greatest gift that was given to me in Alcoholics Anonymous was getting to talk to my dad. We went to the same Friday night meeting, and I found out he was just as afraid as I was. He had all the fears, and he was one of the nicest, most gentlemen I've ever met in my life. You know, and if he wasn't my dad, he would have been my friend because he was just such a gentle soul. 
And um, I love him, and I miss him terribly, you know. I miss those weird things he used to say out loud, you know. And um, when I turned 20, I, when I had 20 years of sobriety about 15 years ago, I, they threw a party for me. About 300 people showed up at this party. And um, I didn't have 300 people who wished me dead at the end of my drinking. There's these 300 people coming to this, this party for me celebrating 20 years. And when it came time for the birthday cake, they wheeled it out, and it had a big picture of Howdy Doody on it, and they all sang <laughs> the Howdy Doody song to me again. And that means the world to me. Because for once in my life, I felt really good. You know. And if you're new, I hope you find what I have found around here, because I love this program. I love being sober. Um, I love taking care of the alcoholics in the emergency room. We're not good patients, guys. We're not good patients. I've actually been speaking around the country, and people come up and go, I think I owe you an amends. And I think, for what? And they said, I've been in your ER. Oh, well, that's enough said then. You know? But I hope I never, ever treat anybody with our disease with anything but dignity and respect. Because I don't know who's going to find this and who's going to get this, but I hope every one of them does. Because this is not something that we that I take lightly. This is a horrible disease that we have. Um, I want to thank Damien again for asking me to come down and speak. And, and I want to thank all of you for being here. God bless. Thanks.